Section 19. The Sea Dog, The Question, The Sinologue, of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapters 53 to 55. The Sea Dog. Ship's captains, for the most part, are very dull men. Their conversation is of freights and cargoes. They have seen little more in the ports they visit than their agent's office, the bar which their kind frequents, and the bawdy houses. They owe the glamour of romance which their connection with the sea has cast over them to the imagination of the landsman. To them the sea is a means of livelihood, and they know it, as an engine-driver knows his engine, from a standpoint which is aridly practical. They are men, working men, of a narrow outlook, with small education for the most part, and little culture. They are all of a piece, and they have neither subtlety nor imagination. Straightforward, courageous, honest, and reliable, they stand four-square on the immutability of the obvious, and they are definite. They are placed in their surroundings like the objects in a stereoscopic photograph, so that you may seem to see all around them. They offer themselves to you with salient traits. But no one could have adhered less to type than Captain Boots. He was the master of a little Chinese steamer on the upper Yangtze, and because I was his only passenger we spent a good deal of time in one another's company. But though he was fluent of speech, garrulous even, I see him shadowly, and he remains in my mind indistinctly. I suppose it is on account of his elusiveness that he engages my imagination. There was certainly nothing elusive in his appearance. He was a big man, six foot two, powerfully built, with large features and a red, friendly face. When he laughed he showed a row of handsome gold teeth. He was very bald and clean-shaven, but he had the most bushy, abundant, and aggressive eyebrows that I have ever seen, and under them mild blue eyes. He was a Dutchman, and though he had left Holland when he was eight, he still spoke with an accent. He could not pronounce the, but always made it the. His father, a fisherman who sailed his own schooner on the Zyder Zee, hearing that fishing was good in Newfoundland, had set out with his wife and his two sons across the broad Atlantic. After some years there and in Hudson's Bay, all this was hard on half a century ago, they had sailed round the Horn for the Bering Straits. They hunted seal until the law stepped in to save the beasts they were exterminating, and then Boots, a man now and a brave one, God knows, sailed here and there, as third, then as second mate on sailing vessels. He had been almost all his life in sail, and now on a steamer, could not make himself at home. "'It's only in a sailing boat you get comfort,' he said. "'There's no comfort anywhere when you got steam.' He had been all along the coast of South America after nitrates, and then to the west coast of Africa, then again fishing cod off the coast of Maine to America, and after that with cargoes of salt fish to Spain and Portugal. A tavern acquaintance in Manila suggested that he should try the Chinese customs. He went to Hong Kong, where he was taken on as a tide-waiter, and presently was put in command of a steam-launch. 
He spent three years chasing the opium smugglers, and then, having saved a little money, built himself a forty-five-ton schooner with which he determined to go to the Bering Straits and try his luck again with the seal fishery. "'But I guess my crew got scared,' he said. "'When I got to Shanghai they deserted and I couldn't get no other, so I had to sell the boat and I shipped on a vessel what was going to Vancouver.' It was then he first left the sea. He met a man who was pushing a patent hay-fork, and this he agreed to take round the States. It was a queer occupation for a sailor-man, and it was not a successful one, for at Salt Lake City, the firm that employed him having gone bankrupt, he found himself stranded. Somehow or other he got back to Vancouver, but he was taken with the idea of life ashore, and he found work with an estate agent. It was his duty to take the purchases of land to their plots, and if they were not satisfied, persuade them that they need not regret their bargain. "'We sold one fellow a farm on the side of the mountain,' he said, his blue eyes twinkling at the recollection, "'and it was so steep that the chickens had one leg longer than the other.' After five years he had the idea that he would like to go back to China. He had no difficulty in getting a job as a mate of a ship sailing west, and soon he was at the old life once more. Since then he had been on most of the China runs, from Vladivostok to Shanghai, from Amoy to Manila, and on all the big rivers, on steamers now, rising from second to first mate, and at last on Chinese-owned ships to master. He talked willingly of his plans for the future. He had been in China long enough, and he hankered after a farm on the Fraser River. He would build himself a boat and do a bit of fishing, salmon and halibut. "'It's time I settled down,' he said. Fifty-three years I've been to sea, and I shouldn't wonder but what I did a bit of boat-building, too. I'm not one to stick to one ding.' There he was right, and this restlessness of his translated itself into a curious indecision of character. There was something fluid about him, so that you did not know where to take hold of him. He reminded you of a scene of mist and rain in a Japanese print, where the design, barely suggested, almost escapes you. He had a peculiar gentleness which was somewhat unexpected in the rough old salt. "'I don't want to offend anyone,' he said. "'Treat him kindly, that's what I try to do. If people won't do what you want, talk to him nicely, persuade him. There's no need to be nasty. Try what coaxing'll do.' It was a principle which it was unusual to find used with the Chinese, and I do not know that it answered very well for after some difficulty he would come into the cabin, wave his hands, and say, "'I can do nothing with em. They won't listen to reason.' And then his moderation looked very like weakness. But he was no fool. He had a sense of humour. At one place we were drawing over seven feet, and since the river at its shallowest was barely that, and the course was dangerous, the harbour authorities would not give us our papers till part of the cargo was unloaded. It was the ship's last trip, and she was carrying the pay of regiments stationed several days downstream. The military governor refused to let the ship start, unless the bullion was taken. "'I guess I got to do what you tell me,' said Captain Boots to the harbour-master. "'You don't get your papers till I see the five-foot mark above the water,' answered the harbour-master. "'I'll tell the comprador to take out some of dat silver.' He took the harbour-master up to the customs club, and stood him drinks while this was being done. He drank with him for four hours, and when he returned he walked as steadily as when he went. 
but the harbour-master was drunk. "'Ah, I see they've got it down two foot,' said Captain Boots. "'That's all right, then.' The harbour-master looked at the numbers on the ship's side, and sure enough the five-foot mark was at the water's edge. "'That's good,' he said, "'and now you can go.' "'I'll be off right away,' said the captain. Not a pound of cargo had been removed, but an astute Chinaman had neatly repainted the numbers. And later, when mutinous regiments with an eye on the silver we carried sought to prevent us from leaving one of the riverside cities, he showed an agreeable firmness. His equable temper was tried, and he said, "'No one's going to make me stay where I don't want to. I'm the master of this ship, and I'm the man what gives the orders. I'm going.' The agitated comprador said the military would fire if we attempted to move. An officer uttered a command, and the soldiers, going down on one knee, leveled their rifles. Captain Boots looked at them. "'Put down the bulletproof screen,' he said. "'I tell you I'm going, and the Chinese army can go to hell.' He gave his orders to raise the anchor, and at the same time the officer gave the order to fire. Captain Boots stood on his bridge, a somewhat grotesque figure, for in his old blue jersey, with his red face and burly frame, he looked the very image of those ancient fishermen that you see lounging about Grimsby docks, and he rang his bell. We steamed out slowly to the spatter of rifle shots. THE QUESTION They took me to the temple. It stood on the side of a hill, with a semicircle of tawny mountains behind it, staging it, as it were, with a formal grandeur, and they pointed out to me with what exquisite art the series of buildings climbed the hill till you reached the final edifice, a jewel of white marble encircled by the trees, for the Chinese architect sought to make his creation an ornament to nature, and he used the accidents of the landscape to complete his decorative scheme. They pointed out to me how cunningly the trees were planted, to contrast with the marble of a gateway, to give an agreeable shadow here, or there to serve as a background, and they made me remark the admirable proportion of those great roofs, rising one beyond the other in rich profusion with the grace of flowers, and they showed me that the yellow tiles were of different hues, so that the sensibility was not offended by an expanse of colour but amused and pleased by a subtle variety of tone. They showed me how the elaborate carving of a gateway was contrasted with a surface without adornment, so that the eye was not wearied. All this they showed me as we walked through elegant courtyards, over bridges which were a miracle of grace, through temples with strange gods, dark and gesticulating, but when I asked them what was the spiritual state which had caused all this massive building to be made, they could not tell me. THE SINOLOGUE He is a tall man, rather stout, flabby as though he does not take enough exercise, with a red, clean-shaven, broad face and grey hair. He talks very quickly, in a nervous manner, with a voice not quite big enough for his body. He lives in a temple just outside the city gate, inhabiting the guest chambers, and three Buddhist priests with a tiny acolyte tend the temple and conduct the rites. There is a little Chinese furniture in the rooms, and a vast number of books, but no comfort. 
It is cold, and the study in which we sit is insufficiently warmed by a petroleum stove. He knows more Chinese than any man in China. He has been working for ten years on a dictionary which will supersede that of a noted scholar, whom for a quarter of a century he has personally disliked. He is thus benefiting sinological studies and satisfying a private grudge. He has all the manner of a don, and you feel that eventually he will be professor of Chinese at the University of Oxford, and then at last exactly in his place. He is a man of wider culture than most sinologues who may know Chinese, and this you must take on trust, but who, it is lamentably obvious, knows nothing else and his conversation upon Chinese thought and literature has in consequence a fullness and a variety which you do not often find among students of the language. Because he has immersed himself in his particular pursuits, and has cared nothing for racing and shooting, the Europeans think him queer. They look upon him with the suspicion and awe with which human beings always regard those who do not share their tastes. They suggest that he is not quite sane, and some accuse him of smoking opium. It is the charge which is always brought against the white man who has sought to familiarize himself with the civilization in which he is to pass the greater part of his career. You have only to spend a little while in that apartment, bare of the most common luxury, to know that this is a man who leads a life wholly of the spirit. But it is a specialized life. Art and beauty seem not to touch him, and as I listen to him talk so sympathetically of the Chinese poets, I cannot help asking myself if the best things have not, after all, slipped through his fingers. Here is a man who has touched reality only through the printed page. The tragic splendor of the lotus moves him only when its loveliness is enshrined in the verse of Li Bo, and the laughter of demure Chinese girls stirs his blood but in the perfection of an exquisitely chiselled quatrain. End of section 19